has been mentioned, we are in that season of Lent, that season where we take 40 days and then Sundays to prepare and especially reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ made for us on the cross. This year, to help us focus in that direction, to turn our eyes on Jesus, we're going to be using the Heidelberg Catechism, looking at the Lord's Day that addressed the issue of sin. I will explain this more in the message, but let's start with that. The Heidelberg Catechism being a teaching of our church that summarizes our understanding of Scripture, written in a question and answer format. So I will ask the question and invite you to join with me as we say aloud together the answer as provided on the screen behind me. The Catechism begins by asking this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we respond together by saying that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then it asks, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Of course, that is a summary of the teachings of Scripture. And for our messages, we want to ensure that those are in line with Scripture. So this morning, we will be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. It's on the screen behind me. But as always, I encourage you to pull out your own Bibles or your pew Bibles this time on page 1118, where you can follow along, and I'll be making reference to this text throughout, so the encouragement, as always, is to keep your Bibles open so you can follow along as we refer back to what is in the text. But again, page 1118 of your pew Bibles, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, reading through verse 20. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul brings to a conclusion he's been making an argument from the beginning of the book, and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we are already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of course, uh, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if, as we have said, that Lent is meant to help us focus on the sacrifice of Christ, I agreed immediately with the commentary written by R.C. Sproul on this text that we just read when he started by saying, we are not ready to hear the gospel until we first understand the indictment against humanity that comes down to us from God himself. Or as I'm going to put it this morning and reiterate throughout this message, in other words, we cannot understand that comfort that we just talked about that comes from Christ until we first understand the graveness of the threat that we truly face. We human beings like to do a lot of crazy things. For whatever reason, we love to throw ourselves into dangerous situations. Pastor Brent talked about riding around on a fast boat on the lake. Uh, an example I was thinking of was a uh, time that many of you have done at Mount Hermon. For whatever reasons, we like to set up these tree houses up in the canopies of these really high trees and string lines in between them and then strap ourselves to a tiny little device that's got wheels on it and fling ourselves from tree to tree hundreds of feet above the ground. And of course, as we do that, we are in a dangerous situation. We're on this metal string with this harness, but if we should at any point fall, there is no doubt that at the very least we will suffer major injury, more likely that our lives would be cost if and when we would ever fall. And so to prevent that, the only way you can do that is you wear a harness. You strap yourself to this device that clips to that tiny device with the wheels and to the rope above or, or the, the metal cable above. And that way, when you lose grip or fall, instead of falling to your death, you only fall a few feet. And to make sure that you're ready for that and understand how that works and develop a trust in that harness, ensuring that it works before you get way up in the trees, when you're standing on the ground, they have you practice. You put your full weight on the harness to know what it's going to feel like to learn that you can trust that harness, that it is going to hold you because that's the only way you would survive. That is comfort. Putting your full weight in the harness, knowing that it will save you. Comfort is needed when you're in panic. 
Comfort is needed when all of a sudden that fear boils up into you and you are scared to death. And comfort is the idea that the harness is going to hold. That the boat is on its way and it's going to come and pick you up. That the doctors have found an answer to the problems that you're facing and there is something that they can do about it. That it was just a nightmare and you're not alone. That's what comfort is. I say that again to make the point. We will never truly appreciate the comfort we have in Christ until we have a full appreciation for the terror, for the panic of what faces us otherwise. And that's why I chose the texts that I chose for us this morning and the theme for this series that will be repeated throughout. But as soon as we look at these texts, I couldn't help but realizing that there is a, a really big disconnect between the, our way and understanding of life and the way and understanding of life when these texts were written so long ago. Back then, people knew and assumed life is hard. Most of your time every single day was given to an incredible amount of effort just to survive. Water didn't just come out of a faucet. You had to know where your fresh water source was and you had, <clears throat> you had to go through the effort of collecting that water in order to drink. In order to eat, you had to grow your crops, tending to it, doing the labor of growing your own food with the constant threat of, of flood or danger or, or insects that would destroy that crop. Or you'd have to kill and butcher your own animals in order to have the food you needed to eat. And then you had to go and get the wood to make the fires to cook that food, to keep yourself warm, to be able to have any light to see by. And then in the inevitability and in the inevitability of an injury, you just had to deal with it. There was nowhere you could go that you could figure out what was going on. You just the aches and pains that would come with that difficult life just had to be endured because there were no answers. In contrast to that, Many today assume life is supposed to be easy. And what an easy life we live. We don't have to worry about if there's going to be food. We complain more about trying to decide what of all of the options we have we want to have to eat. We don't have to worry in terms of work or, or labor quite so much. Work is sitting in an air-conditioned tractor or a comfy chair in an air-conditioned office. And we complain about the hours we have to spend there when the labor is far less than it once was. And in those injuries... What a joy, what a gift to live in a day and an age where when our knees start to ache and give out, they can replace them. And when we wonder what's going on with these mysterious seizures, they can identify exactly what is going on and be able to go in and fix that. In a world so comfortable, why do we need comfort? Back when these texts were written, for Paul writing to the Romans, they knew 
that when you professed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were actually adding trials and struggles to your life. There was a whole bunch of great, powerful systems that wanted nothing to do with this new Christian faith and wanted to give all of their effort to shut it down and to stop it. It was a similar situation for when the catechism was written in professing a reformed faith. And they knew that they would have to face that trial, that they were welcoming those struggles, and they believed nevertheless. Again, in contrast to that, how many people in order to sell Christianity, sell it as something that's going to solve all of your problems? That when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to be happier, healthier. God will answer your prayers, bless you with riches and abundance. And again, if that's the world in which we live, why do we need to worry about comfort? Because the threat isn't the same. Back when Romans was written, people thought and looked at the world and said, those pagans, they clearly are living in opposition to God. And because of their immoral lifestyle and their rejection of the God that created them, they are certainly worthy of receiving his wrath being dismissed by God and living difficult lives with no hope beyond the grave. Thinking that as Jews, the recipients of God's covenant promises and the laws, that they were better off in a better situation than those wicked pagans. And again, in contrast to that, we live in a world where very often, even as Christians, if there is such a thing as a hell. It's probably pretty empty. That it only has the very worst of genocidal dictator rulers from history or serial killers that have earned their way there. But for the most part, when we look around, we think most people are pretty good. And so if most people are pretty good, and when we compare ourselves to others, we, by that standard, are also pretty good. Then if pretty good people end up going to heaven, then where is the threat? And why do we need comfort? And I highlight those differences for this very fact. That what if, or more importantly, since all of those modern assumptions are wrong when compared to Scripture. We need to expose that and know that as comfortable as we are, we are in far greater threat than what we often think. And so, despite those major differences, when we look at Romans chapter 3, we realize that Paul exposes that threat. And it's not just through his own experiences that he does so, but it's mostly by going back to Scripture and looking at what the Old Testament tells us about who we truly are in the eyes of the God that created us that we can truly appreciate our predicament. When it all came down to the end, the summary teaching that he ultimately is working toward in our text is found in verse 20 when he says pretty clearly, 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Yes, there certainly were benefits for the Jewish people as recipients of possessing God's revelation and his law. And yes, as Jews, they could and did try to conform every part of their life to the teachings of that law. But in the end, that law, as we're going to develop more next week, did more to condemn than it did have the power to save because no one was able to fully live up to every standard of that law. Everyone fell short. To get to that point and to support it, go back to the beginning where Paul starts in verse 9 by suggesting in a position of being judged by God, Jews were no better off than Gentiles. He says this because, as he has already explained earlier in Romans, all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And especially one of the commentaries that I read on this text highlighted how significant that statement is, being under sin. That doesn't just mean that all of us, through our lives, at some point will give in to sin. It doesn't mean that from time to time, while we live our good lives, every once in a while, we will stumble, we will falter, we will make a mistake. No, being under sin means that we are under the control of sin. That we are addicted to sin. That everything that we do is tainted by sin and that we are completely and totally corrupt. We cannot fix it. We cannot escape it. And we know this from experience. Just think about it. Uh, today's February 18, meaning that we are just under 50 days into 2024. And right about 50 days ago, we all sat here and were challenged as we entered into the new year to think about those sinful activities that we needed to leave in the past and step away from as we sought to live for Christ. And maybe some of you did that with resolutions and, and desires to change certain activity. We're 50 days in. How are you doing? Have those changes taken place? We're in the season of Lent, often marked by sacrifices that people make. And the interesting thing is, is that as people give up eating sweets or give up coffee or give up certain amounts of time in front of the TV or on their phone, I've too often heard people say, well, I, I can't give up these things or we don't give up certain sins that we should because we know we will never live out that commitment and we will fail. We know through experience that whatever efforts we might put forward in our own strength to put sin behind us, we fall short. And that is when Paul does start to quote from these Old Testament texts to support this point. For Quoting mostly from Psalms and 
Isaiah, the reason why our text kind of has that shrunk size is because he's going back and he's pulling out those texts. And, and the first ones in general, uh, in, in verses 10 through 12, makes the, the general indictment. He says again, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, to the, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You don't need very much more to put to death that idea that most people are, are pretty good in and of themselves. That just because we don't see them committing terrible things or, or doing awful, rebellious stuff, that must mean that they're all right in the eyes of God. Instead, if we recognize that the first and greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then we ask, has anyone been able to truly do that for more than just a few moments of their life at a time? Again, with both the teaching of Scripture and experience, we have to answer no. Every person in every place of the world at all times throughout history is guilty of sinning against their creator. There is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous because they don't seek after God. We get so caught up in our own desires, our own plans, our own needs that we dismiss the all-powerful creator of the universe. No one does good, not even one. Not me, not you, not that nice neighbor next door, no one. And if we needed convincing, he fleshes that out in verses 13 and 14 by going again to the Old Testament and finding examples of common sins. And he pulls out some that highlight the sin of speech. When again, he says in verses 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. One of the obvious ways that we often stumble is by use of our mouth and our speech. And again, when we go to experience, I'm sure all of us can think of examples of our own lives where the words of other people have hurt us so deeply. Comments of the clothes they saw us wearing drove us to never wear an outfit like that again. Ridicule of the way that we acted when we tried something new, but they all thought we looked goofy and funny doing it, prevented us from ever trying to do something like that in front of others again. Overhearing comments that criticized our abilities, our character, our actions, shamed us into hiding and wanting to change who we are. And then as much as we recognize how those kinds of words have hurt and affected us, that's where we need to be honest and think about how the words that have come out of our mouths have affected others. Where when we thought we were just kidding or joking, 
got to the core of an insecurity that somebody else had and really harmed their view of who they are. And how many times, like the text says, does our lips spew forth curses and bitterness? I personally can think about many conversations, many foolish words that, and vain words that came out of my mouth that I so desperately wish I could go back and, and fix or remove. But that's the point. When we think about what we say, all of us are guilty of misusing and abusing our words. And if we're not yet convicted, in verse this is 15 to 18, he highlights other Old Testament texts that speak of other specific sins, sins of violence. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Going all the way back to the beginning, when in rejecting God, we became fools by saying in our heart that there is no God. We turned to our own selfishness and our own desires, and the extent of that sin is demonstrated that right away after Adam and Eve were moved out of the garden, in the next generation, their one son, Cain, murdered his brother Abel because of jealousy and anger. Now, we might reject that and, and object and say, well, I've never shed blood. I am not a murderer. And while that may, not be, while that may be true, think about the way that you've often looked at other people and how they've been perceived by you as a problem to your life, an obstacle to your happiness, and because of that, you could think of nothing more than wanting to destroy them, get around them, or remove them from your life in your anger and being upset. You may not have taken those steps to actually eliminate them, but in your heart, that is how you treated them. And again, when you compound that and you add that all up, these are just examples and illustrations. And through these quotes from scriptures, we're supported by our own experience in the final analysis, we recognize the depth of the threat. And it's pretty compelling and it's hard to deny. Here's the truth. As comfortable as our lives have become, we still face hardships. Hardships caused by the sin of others and hardships we cause ourselves because of our own sins. Furthermore, even if medical technology can both extend our lives and make a better quality for our lives, the reality is at some point there will come a day when we all will die and when the days of our when our days on earth come to an end we are told in scripture that we will all appear individually before the judgment seat of the creator god and he will render a verdict on our lives and when every thought every hurtful word 
Every sinful action is revealed and exposed in front of that pure and, perf pure and perfect God. To put it mildly, it's going to be pretty uncomfortable. And that is because, according to this passage, according to our own conscience, and certainly according to God's standard of perfection, we know that we are all guilty. And guilty people are worthy of God's wrath against their sin. Like Adam and Eve, all of us deserve nothing more than to be driven from God's presence and condemned, expelled from him in hell forever. And while culture and our own minds have tried to minimize the reality of the existence of hell and who is worthy of being condemned there, hell is what we deserve. Hell is what we have chosen in our sin Hell is what we have earned, and hell is awful. That's the threat. That's the problem. That is our great need. We are going to hell, and there is nothing we can do to fix it. Every day we live is bringing us one day closer to that time when we will stand before God and be judged. And that should cause all of us to fear and to panic because we are falling and there is no harness that we can design for ourselves to stop it. But, but the hope of Lent is that there is an answer. And one of the greatest evidence of just how far we have fallen and how great our sin is, is to look at, with honest eyes, the price that had to be paid in order to give us hope and comfort. Because there was no effort that you could offer, no good thing that you could do to fix the sins that you have committed in the past, Jesus Christ, God's only Son himself, had to come to this earth and live a perfect life himself, never once giving in to the temptation to sin. And then he offered himself as a sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice, where he died an awful, terrible death upon a cross, bearing on that cross not just the physical pain of a crucifixion, but more importantly, the spiritual pain of being abandoned by his Father, rejected by him as we should have been. And he bore that wrath himself. But the good news is, and the comfort that we proclaim and celebrate in that him, in him bearing that pain on our behalf, he offers to us the promise, the comfort, the hope of forgiveness. There is comfort because for those that have received by faith the grace of Jesus Christ, we proclaim they are not any longer their own, but they belong to their faithful Savior. There is comfort because we have been bought with his precious 
blood, whereas we used to be under sin, under the slavery owned by sin, we now have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and we, who has fully paid for all our sins and we have been set free from the tyranny of the devil. There is comfort because now I am willing and ready and I will add able to live for him. That I have a purpose to my life. And then the catechism says, to truly know that comfort, you must know how great your sin and misery is. That there is only one way that we will be able to appreciate that comfort is to know that we have a need that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we need to know how we've been set free through his sacrifice. And then how we can live and show our thankfulness for that great sacrifice. That's going to be goal, the goal of this sermon series. Honestly, it will be mostly focused on the negative. To understand how great our misery is. But when we understand how great we have offended our God. That is when we finally and fully can truly appreciate what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. We need comfort when that panic and that fear arise. And like swinging through the trees and having that harness there, the question is, do you know the comfort of Jesus Christ? Have you placed all of the weight of your life in his hands? And as he offers to you the, the hope of forgiveness and life eternally with him in heaven, have you received that gift of grace? Recognizing how great your sin is, thanking him for his sacrifice, and now striving to live for him in all that you do. That's my hope in this season of Lent. That each and every one of us will appreciate our need for Christ and what he's, done in, what he's done for us in his sacrifice. And as we work through this season, if you want to know more fully for yourself, do I have that comfort? Speak to me, speak to Pastor Brent, speak to one of our elders. And we will pass along that assurance that is given us in Jesus Christ. That there is hope despite our sins. With that in mind, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us for making light of our rebellion against you. Forgive us for using a standard of comparison rather than a, a standard of your holiness in evaluating how good we are. Forgive us for assuming that we can fix the problems of sin that we have created. But thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for offering us hope. Thank you for rescuing us when we were lost and when we were on our way to eternal damnation. I pray that through the season of Lent that we would again greatly appreciate the incredible sacrifice given to us through your Son. And in appreciating that, not only would it turn our hearts to worship you in all of our, our, our times gathered here,
but it would cause us to worship you in every moment of our lives, forsaking sin, living for you, and spreading that great word of hope that we ourselves have received. Lord, may that be our testimony, not just in this season, but throughout our lives as we live each day for you. Lord, may we praise and glorify your name for the grace that you have given us in Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.